Amen. Thank you. Let me pray as we begin this morning in God's word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'll have you stand as you're able for the reading of scripture this morning. We're continuing in our Lenten study of Peter. Uh, We've been studying Peter's flaws and faith and utilizing him as an avatar to step inside these stories and hear the invitations that Jesus offers to us. And this morning, we get a second confession from Peter. We had one last week. This is his second one. And this time it is in John chapter 6. Verses 53 through 71. Now, I know some of you are looking at that and you're going, that's a long passage. Yes, that is a long passage. Uh, It is a bit of a longer text this morning, so I'd invite you to center your mind and your heart on listening intently this morning to God's word. You can do that by just feeling your feet on the ground, by deepening your breathing, and being reminded that these are words that have been spoken over God's faithful people long before we got here, and they've been faithful uh, to receive those words, and we have that opportunity as well this morning. So hear this good word from John chapter 6. So Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood will have eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like that which the ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you, there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who were the ones who did not believe and who were the ones who would betray him. And he said, for this reason, I have told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the 12 disciples, Do you wish to go away also? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, though he was one of the twelve, was going to betray Jesus. The gospel of our Lord, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. 
Uh, this whole chapter of John 6 uh, is really a roller coaster. If you look over it, um, it begins with a group of followers who are ready to crown Jesus as their king. They are super excited about what he's doing. They're enamored with the healings that he's performing. And they begin to see him as the kind of king who might finally come and overthrow Rome. So they are ready to crown him. But earlier on in the chapter, Jesus slips away from these crowds and he goes elsewhere. But they catch up to him. And when they catch up to him, he performs the miracle of the feeding of 5,000 from just fish and bread. This sends the crowds into absolute euphoria. They are not only ready to be his army, but now he has shown that he can feed them as an army, right? And then Jesus begins to teach them. He says that he's not going to keep multiplying fish and loaves for them every time, he, every time they ask, that they are focused on the wrong things. And instead, he asks his followers to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood for sustenance, that he's the bread of life. The crowds are repulsed by this teaching. Maybe you were too when you heard it. Not only is the drinking of blood totally prohibited in the Old Testament in Leviticus 17, the idea of it is just plain gross. This is actually a common misunderstanding that we see throughout church history. Decades later in Rome, Christians will be persecuted in ways that you and I cannot possibly imagine. And and one of the reasons was because the Romans actually thought they were cannibals, the way that they were talking about their Savior Jesus. Of course... Jesus does not mean this literally. He has called himself the bread of life, and he is speaking of his figurative body, a body that's going to be sacrificed as a penalty for sin, and the need for his followers to not simply follow Jesus for his miracles or what he can do for them. They need to follow him out of love and commitment to him. So verse 60 is one of honesty. These followers, who were not the 12 disciples, by the way, they were crowds that had followed Jesus in Galilee, ones that he had picked up along the way. They say to each other, this is a hard teaching. Was anybody thinking of that as I was reading it? This is a hard teaching. Who can follow this? Who can feasibly follow this? And Jesus doesn't go, oh, no, it's, it's, it's not that bad, you guys. He actually affirms that this is offensive. He says, does this offend you? And it's hard. And verse 66 tells us that many of these people stopped following Jesus. The actual word in the original Greek is a tragic one. It says that they turned away from following Jesus or or they have forsaken Jesus. A translation could be they turned back to their lives before they even knew who Jesus was and pretended like he wasn't even a person. That's what we're talking about here. A brutally painful verse in Scripture. And Jesus turns to the 12 disciples who remain. And he asks, do you want to go join them? Those people who have their backs turned and they're leaving, do you want to join them? Are you going to forsake me as well? And here's where we get this sliding door moment for Peter. A real hinge moment in his journey. When so many others are leaving, will Peter remain with Jesus? And Peter responds in these beautiful words, where else are we going to go? Where are we going to go, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. Where else could we go? This is Peter's second confession of faith after his remarkable confession of faith at Caesarea Philippi, which we talked about last week. And here he affirms, Jesus, I have nowhere else to go. Where would I go? 
I've heard, who, I, I, I've heard you teaching. I know who you are. I'm here, and I am all in with you. This is my life now. There's no other way for me to go. No other way to go. So that's sort of our text today. Um, I was thinking about this. Uh, several years ago, I was downtown, and I stopped on a beautiful fall day at St. James Cathedral. Um, it's on uh, Huron and Wabash, just right off Michigan Avenue. Because um, I wanted to walk their modest little prayer labyrinth. Uh, it's one of the only prayer labyrinths uh, in the city of Chicago. Uh, here it is. You can see those are birds there. So you can see it's not a very big prayer labyrinth. It's kind of tiny. Um, I began my journey on this winding path, slowly walking, uh, mindful of putting one foot in front of the other until I was distracted by a businesswoman on her cell phone who walked directly through their labyrinth as I was walking in it. Uh, no regard whatsoever uh, for the, the black ink that was forming the invisible walls that I was uh, being bound in by. She just created her own path straight through. And then a few minutes later, as I was entering, uh, getting towards the center of the labyrinth, uh, there was a, a young man who, I don't know if he saw me doing it and wanted to try it, or if he was there for another reason. He, he began to sort of walk the labyrinth and, and lasted just a few seconds and then just went straight to the center uh, and stood there for a little bit, and then, and then he left. And, and both of these felt like sort of a desecration for me in a way. I know they're not really, like this is not necessarily like a holy thing, but it felt like wrong for them to do that. An unwillingness to stay on the path that was in front of them. Uh, so I finished my winding journey pretty distracted, but I did look at those black lines a little differently, right? All of a sudden they felt optional to me because I had seen people walk right through them. That path that was so clear seemed like maybe it wasn't such a clear path. And, and I want to ask this morning, because it's something I think about quite a bit. Um, do, you, do you ever wonder what your life would be like if you had gotten off the path that you're on right now and done something else? I think that's a basic human experience, right? Um, I think about that quite a bit. I, I wonder if I wasn't a pastor, what would I be doing in my life? I do want you to know I'm not the least bit restless in my job or my work. I love what I do. Um, but I think it's natural for uh, our, our minds to sort of wonder, what could, I, what could I be doing? What other paths could I have been on? If I had, if I had hopped the line to something else, what would it look like? Uh, for those of you who maybe are restless in what you're doing or your stage of life right now, I'd guess that this question is probably more persistent for you than it is for me. But I've, I think I've been thinking about it quite a bit because my, uh, our, our oldest son, Quinn, is just a little over a year away from heading to college. And um, he's constantly being asked, like, what do you want to do with your life, which is his least favorite question in the world right now. Um, and, I'm, and I keep trying to relieve some of that pressure by saying, you're talented, you're gifted, you're a great person, you're going to have a lot of options, you'll figure it out, it's okay. You don't have to have this all figured out, just, you know, kind of keep going. And I think that's caused me to think about the various pivot points in my own life that have led me to where I am. What, what if I had taken a different turn? What if I had taken a different turn? Um, I think of this particularly in, um, in terms of music. Um, I don't want to become too impressive to you this morning, but I was in a band in college, okay? Um, we had a lot of fun playing concerts and house parties on our campus, uh, and, and we had some modest success playing around the Twin Cities for, uh, for a couple of years. Um, for me, it was this really fun thing um, that, that I did before sort of giving up that dream and, and, and moving on to other things, but one of the fun things is our drummer, uh, his name is Steve, he went on to be a, a professional drummer. This is, uh, this is Steve. He's played in front of hundreds of thousands of people in his life, uh, huge concerts, uh, um, acts like uh, Owl City and Ben Rector and Sarah Bareilles. Uh, he's a drummer for Sarah Bareilles, um, and it's been a, a super 
awesome joy in my life to be able to sort of track with him uh, through his illustrious career. It also makes me feel way cooler and look way cooler to all of you to know that I played with a drummer like that, right, Um, who went on to do big things. Uh, when he was uh, on tour in Chicago uh, last year, I was able to, to pick him up and, uh, out of the tour bus and grab a cup of coffee with him. And I asked him a question, which may seem silly to you, but it was an earnest question. And I said, do you think, I'm just asking, do you think I could have been a professional musician? <laughs> and he said, well, not like me, which, <laughs> which is an honest response. And, and make no mistake, he was always light years ahead of the rest of us in terms of, of talent. But he did go on to say something which I believe is true. He said, but for sure you could have made a career in music if you had wanted to do it. You could have done that. And he went on to explain something that, that uh, I've, I've always kind of wondered about and suspected. He said that, that you know, the musicians that you see um, on tour or, or on your TV or on YouTube um, are not necessarily the best musicians in the world, right? There are more talented musicians than, than ones you'll ever see on TV that are in accountant jobs right now. Uh, the difference is the, music, the music, musicians that you see on your TV screen or on your phone or that you hear in your, in your, on your headphones are the people who stuck with it. They're the ones who stuck with it. They basically made no money throughout their 20s. They opted to not get married early in their life. They toured constantly. They, they slept on weird futons in strange cities. Um, they, they went about in tour buses. They delayed having kids or sacrificed greatly for the families that they already had. And he described the music industry as a war of attrition, a war of attrition. Um, he said, yeah, you could have totally been a professional musician if you had been willing to sacrifice for it. And I'm sure it's the same for a lot of other professions, for actors, I know that's true, for chefs, for athletes, for corporate executives, and any number of of mainstream professions as well. So I asked Steve, you know, obviously you you were very talented, very young, but why did you stick with it? Why are you doing what you're doing? And he said, well, I had already spent so much time on the drums by the time I was 18 that I really grew to love the instrument so much that I couldn't imagine anything else being as fulfilling in my life. And he said, if you don't love it, if you don't like every day, all day, love this stuff, a career in music is not going to work for you because it's really hard and the cost is huge. It's just huge. And I'll tell you, the cost for Steve and his life has been absolutely huge. And yet, he still practices hours a day to improve and become the best drummer he can be, even somewhere you go, how could you be any better than you already are? Um, He knows that he can be better at his craft. And he is still fighting in his 40s. He's fighting that war of attrition uh, in the music industry. Um, I share this because I think um, there are obvious parallels for me as I think about our text for today. Um, but we don't often think about following Jesus in this way. We think of following Jesus as like belief in who he is or love of who he is, living a good life. But the reality is that following Jesus is kind of a war of attrition. It really is. It is not the best and the brightest and the most talented who automatically advance to this master Jesus follower status. It's the ones who are willing to stay with Jesus, who are willing to push through hard things, who stick with Jesus even when his teachings are really hard, hard lessons that we have to learn, those who choose to not forsake him. One of my huge griefs over the last several years has been the number of people in my life who I love and care about a lot who have given up on the faith, who have given up on the church, the Bible, even Jesus. Those who once followed him but have found his teachings now too hard or the burden too heavy. 
or his role in their lives to be no longer meeting their needs or the cost to be too much. I know that it's a war of attrition in many ways because I know so many, even people who are in ministry doing what I do, who've turned the other way and said, this is not for me anymore. It's not for me. So my question this morning is, how do we learn from Peter so we can respond like Peter? There have been texts in the series where we do not want to respond like Peter, right? This is one of those where we want to respond like Peter. If the discipleship of Jesus is indeed, in some ways, a war of attrition, where many are going to turn their backs on Jesus, if that's part of the lesson of this text, how can we be those kinds of people, those followers of Jesus, who will respond to Jesus by saying, of course I'm staying with you, Jesus. Where else am I going to go? Where am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, I think there's a few ways that we can do this, and I'm actually going to go back to Steve's answer to my question and how he stayed with his craft of playing drums for all these years as sort of a guide. First, um, we can respond like Peter by spending time with Jesus. Pretty simple, but it's true. The, the first thing that Steve said is that he had spent so much time on the drums already, right? He had already invested significantly in that instrument. He had found that, that time that he had invested to be a worthwhile investment. He felt like he really knew his drum kit. He had proficiency in the drums. When he sat behind them, he felt like he was where he wanted to be. And Peter, too, had spent time with Jesus by this point. He had traveled with him. He had seen his character. He'd been through ups and downs with Jesus. He had left his, his profession as a fisherman. He'd left his family behind to go and be with Jesus. He was already invested significantly so that he could be with Jesus. And if we want to have staying power with Jesus, we similarly need to spend time with him. When I met Steve, he was 19, and he spent two hours every morning from 6 to 8. This is in college. How many of you got up at 6 o'clock in college? Um, from 6 to 8 in the morning practicing, and then he would spend another two to three hours every night practicing in a practice room, working on patterns and techniques and honing his skills. We need to spend daily time with Jesus, time in prayer, time in scripture, time enjoying his presence in our lives. And when we spend time with Jesus, what we find is that we find ourselves more prayerful, more resilient, more peaceful, more focused, less anxious, and less swayed by the circumstances of our lives. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to learn to love Jesus. Steve said that his time on his drums led him to love of that instrument. It transformed the, the chore of getting up and doing this every day and the practice that he had to do to something that he truly loved and looked forward to. I'm confident that Peter did not know everything that he was signing up for when he left his fishing boat to follow Jesus. But as he spent time with Jesus and saw Jesus in action, he witnessed healings and, and, and other miracles, and he saw how Jesus treated people. And he learned, I think, not to just dutifully follow Jesus, but to truly love who Jesus of Nazareth was. And we similarly must learn to love Jesus, not just dutifully spend time with him, to do our quiet times, to do our time of prayer, but to learn to delight in our time with him and to be led towards love of him. If whatever practices you're doing are not leading to a love of who Jesus is, you're doing it wrong. Steve would work until he had calluses on his hands and splinters embedded into his fingers, but he learned to love the drums through that persistent hard work. And the more time we spend with Jesus, the more places in our lives where we allow him to be everything for us, the less we hide from his presence, 
the more we embrace the training that is, that, that is following him, even when it's tedious and hard, the more we learn to appreciate and love who Jesus is. And then the third thing is to see your best life in Jesus. That's one of these phrases. I'm living my best life, right? We need to learn to see our best life in Jesus. Steve said, I can't imagine anything else that I could do being so fulfilling, right? He got to a point in his life where he loved the drums so much that he couldn't envision a future without a drum set in, in the middle of that future, right? What else would he do? Where else could he go to be fulfilled in this way? And those words echo Peter's words because of the time that he had spent with Jesus and his love for Jesus. Peter similarly could not imagine a future without Jesus in the center of that future. For Peter, there were lots of reasons to turn away, just as there are for all of us. Life in Jesus is demanding. His teachings are hard, sometimes even offensive. But for Peter, there's no future vision of himself without Jesus. Where else would he go? What else could he do for us too? Are we willing to see the very best version of our life, of our future with Jesus at the center of it? Because I want to tell you, that is the best version of your life. That is the best version of your future. No other life that you could construct in your mind, I don't care how creative you are, will be as meaningful and fulfilling and purposeful and beautiful as life with Jesus. It's Jesus that holds your best life. So the invitation in this text through our brother Peter is to remain with Jesus even when the going gets tough and others depart from Jesus. And he, through his life and confession, gives us an indication on how to do that. Spend time with Jesus, learn to love Jesus, see your best life in Jesus. There's one other thing to note in Peter's wonderful confession here. He says, you have the words of eternal life. We sang that uh, in the song before, we got it, before I got up here. Um, while so many others left Jesus because his words were too hard, too offensive, too gross even to their own sensibilities, Peter recognized that the words of Jesus, what he says, contain in themselves something divine, something eternal, something life-giving and life-sustaining. So when Jesus says to the crowds, you don't have any life in you unless you eat of the flesh and drink of the blood of the Son of Man, He was contrasting that to the temporal fleeting fish and loaves which only satisfy for a short while until we're hungry again. The crowds wanted more miracles. They wanted more fish. They wanted more bread. But Jesus instead offers himself and says, I'm going to fill you not only to the full today but for eternity. Peter can confess this confession because he's experienced that kind of fulfillment, filling in his own life in the presence of Jesus. So obviously, I never got to be in a a cool band playing in front of thousands of people. Um, There are reasons for that. Would it have been fun to do that? Yeah, it would have been awesome. Uh, But is it what God made me to do? I know for a fact it's not what he made me to do. Because when I was 16 years old, I led my first Bible study at my high school at 6.30 on a Friday morning in a small chapel on the second floor that smelled weird. Six people showed up to the Bible study. One of them didn't even mean to come. She came to the wrong room and just decided to stay. My guitar was out of tune. I didn't know the answer to any of the questions, and I was extremely nervous. But you know what? I got a little taste of eternity that morning. I did. 
I felt like there was something feeding my soul to the absolute brim that morning. It must be sort of like what Steve feels like when he's in front of thousands of people behind a drum kit. Every possible future that I could envision for myself from that moment forward was people gathering around God's word. And I've seen a lot of people walk away from a glimpse of eternity that God gives to them. But I, I haven't done that because I experienced that deep in my heart. And by God's grace, as flawed as I am, I've been able to join Peter in saying, where, where else could I go? <laughs> what else could I do? Jesus, you've got the words of eternal life. So if I could go back to the labyrinth. Uh, the St. James Labyrinth is a miniature model of the labyrinth that is in the Cathedral Notre Dame in Chartres, France. This is it here, an aerial view of that. Um, unlike the original labyrinth, which was in uh, uh, ancient Crete, Theseus's labyrinth, if you know that mythology, where it says that he defeated the mighty Minotaur um, by, by getting it lost inside the labyrinth, the, the Chartres labyrinth, the Christian labyrinth, isn't a maze at all, actually. You can actually start to trace it here. It is a unicursal path, which means that it has no blind alleys, traps, pits, dead ends, or secret chambers. All you have to do is to enter and to keep one foot moving in front of the other and to stay on the path that is prescribed for you. You might notice as you're tracing that, maybe in your own, with your eyes right now, that path at times is going to be moving you closer to the center, right? And then other times, in your journey to get closer to the center, it's going to actually move you further away from the center, even to the farthest reaches of that circle. But that is the path before you. If you recognize and respect and stay on the path, it will indeed get you to the center. That labyrinth was inlaid with rock so that pilgrims could walk it as a metaphor for the Christian life. A cyclical journey that is centered around what form? Look at it. It's the form of a cross. You are doing the journey of the cross when you walk in a labyrinth. The center is meant to be the empty tomb, the place of life, the place of eternal life. I've walked this labyrinth and many smaller ones very much like it since, and every time I'm reminded that my journey is one that God has sent me on. And if I continue to journey the way of the cross every day, guess what? I'm going to journey closer to Jesus. And there are no dead ends. There are no dead ends. I don't have to worry about whether I'm on the right path or not as long as we're centered on Jesus. As I walk a labyrinth like this, one of the beautiful graces of it is I can hear those words, Lord, where else would I go? I'm not, going to hop the, I'm not going to hop the fence here. I'm not going to hop the line. Where else would I go? All I can do is walk the path that you have before me. Friends, do you feel those words in your heart? Where else would I go, Jesus? Do you feel that every life without Jesus at the center of it is something less than the best life that God has for you? I believe that just as Jesus asked those disciples, he asked the same question to us today. What about you? Are you going to leave me as well? Are you going to hop over these black lines? Are you going to walk through this? Are you going to get impatient? Are you going to seek the temporal and the fleeting and that which is not going to fulfill over the long haul? 
Are you going to choose me? And you're going to choose this path and the life that I offer. And I pray that each of us might have the faith of Peter to say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying with you, Jesus. Where else would I go? Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this confession of Peter and the ways in which we are given the opportunity to echo that confession. Lord, you have the words of life. You're the Holy One sent from God. Where else are we going to go? Where else could we go for the life that you offer? Nothing compares. Nothing comes close. So Lord, would you teach us what it means to walk the journey of the cross, the ebb and flow of that journey, and to be faithful to the path that you've set before us? Would you free us from wondering whether or not we've gone the right way? Instead, would you keep our eyes fixed on you, the center of our lives, the hope that we have for eternity? And may you give us the courage to follow you. Especially as we head to this Holy Week season, would you teach us what it means to journey the way of the cross and find life in you? Amen. Amen.